once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. Christmas is important, but Easter is critical for the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, the rest falls apart. Lead teacher Jeff Norris brings us this Easter sermon entitled Renewal and the Resurrection, which covers 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 and John chapter 3 verses 1 to 7, 9, and 14 to 17. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Scripture this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Let's pray together. This is a new tradition that we're doing here at Perimeter. We're going to pray what we call a prayer of illumination together aloud. So let's read this together. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution causes it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seeds sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or 100-fold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Yes, Lord, would you do that? Would you take what we're about to look at in Scripture? Would you take the teaching and the preaching, the reading and the receiving of your word and bless it unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me, let me welcome you. We're so glad to have you here on Easter. I'm also gonna look at the camera here and welcome those who are in our overflow. Uh, we got a lot of people in the chapel, a lot of people in the, in the fellowship hall. We're, uh, we're sorry you weren't able to make it in here, but we're glad that you're with us this morning. And then to our people online as well, we know we have many joining us. Welcome to you also. I want to give you a two-word phrase and see how you react to it. Some of you might react outwardly, verbally, but most of us maybe only inwardly. Born again. How do you react to that phrase, born again? Some of us respond to it inwardly, emotionally, and the very first thing that we picture is a sweaty southern preacher in a tent yelling, you gotta be born again. Southern revivalistic preaching, it's so wrapped up in that that for some of us, myself included, that phrase, although be it very biblical, and although it be it a phrase that Jesus and the apostles use quite often, is a phrase that for, for those reasons has somewhat soured for me over the years. And, and probably the pinnacle of that was 19 years ago. I remember exactly where I was. I remember it was October of 2003. I was new on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, a campus Christian ministry on various colleges. And uh, I was at the University of Southern Miss. And when I would do college ministry over those years at various campuses, my, pra- my, my uh, primary aim was to spend a lot of time in the fraternity houses. 
I was in a fraternity in college and that's where my heart was. And so I wanted to spend time in those spaces because I knew how very little Jesus was talked about in those spaces. So build relationships and try to help people understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it doesn't mean, and some of the caricatures of who Christ is and what Christianity is and what it does mean. And I remember I'd finally gotten this guy. So, so there was, there was a, a weekly meeting that we would do. I would spend my weeks in one-on-one and small group meetings, but there would be a weekly large group gathering that we would have every Tuesday night. And there was this guy in one of the attorney houses that I had finally gotten to come to the weekly gathering. And not that that was the end-all be-all, but sometimes if you can get some folks to come to that weekly gathering, there's a sense of community and camaraderie and fellowship that helps people begin to explore even more what it means to follow Jesus. But this guy was far from being a Christian, but he had come with me. And I tell you, it was no less than maybe five steps into that meeting that night that a very well-intentioned very full of Jesus young man who was also in college walked straight up to him and uh, he was a good old country boy from South Mississippi and he looked straight in this guy's face I was standing right there and he looked straight into his face and he said hey man are you born again and this guy's face screamed no I'm not born again and I'm probably not going to come again to this meeting And if you're taking notes on how to share your faith, if you're a Christian, just right next to that one, uh, no, don't do that. His eyes got big and he looked terrified. And so because of that, that phrase probably has gotten soured for me to the point to where I haven't used it as much as even Jesus used it. Or even the apostles used it, the writers of the scripture. Born again. Uh, What we begin to see in the Easter message, in the message of uh, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that being born again spiritually is at the very heart of that message. And, And the message might be just as simple as this right here. Every single human who longs to be renewed the renewal that all of us long for, and it's gonna be expressed in various ways, in various cultures, in various situations, in various personalities, in various longings, but all of us are longing, if we get down to the, the core of that longing, is that I want to experience something that is transformational. I want to know something that is transcendent. I want to see something and experience something and know that there is something bigger and more purposeful than what this world has to offer. And we long for those things. And what the message of Easter and the, the, really the scriptures more pertinently would say, that the message of Easter is this, that the longings of the human heart for that purpose and for that renewal is only found by faith in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. It's only found in being born again. Now, you might be like a very astute, very influential religious leader in Jesus' day, a guy named Nicodemus. You may be like him where when you hear me say that, you react with, huh? I'm just not getting it. What do you mean born again? So let's look at it. John chapter 3 
there's this encounter that Jesus has early in his ministry with this guy, this Jewish leader named Nicodemus. And all it tells us in the text is that he is a religious leader, which basically means he was really important. He led a lot of people. He was a part of what was called the Sanhedrin back in that day, which was 72 people uh, that led the Jewish faith, the Hebrew faith in that day and time. You can think of them as somewhat kind of like the Supreme Court that we have. And this is what it says in John chapter three. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Take note of that. He came in the shadows of the night, a curious encounter with Jesus in the shadows of the night. Why? Because he's an influential Jew and he cannot be seen interacting with Jesus because these Jewish leaders already hate Jesus for the ways in which he's preaching a gospel that rubs against the things that they had made religion to be. And so he comes in the night and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him and Jesus' answers so very often seem to not be in response to the question that was asked. How do you do these things, Jesus? Surely God's with you. And Jesus, being all knowing and God in the flesh, he responds by saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's where Nicodemus goes, what? I asked you how you do these things. Are you sin of God? And he says, you gotta be born again, Nicodemus. Watch Nicodemus' reply. He says, he says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking only physically. He's thinking this is impossible. What is this, what is this guy talking about? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so he begins to give a little bit of an indication here to Nicodemus that I'm not talking about a physical birth, rebirth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. It has to be born of the spirit. If you skip down to verse nine, Nicodemus is still astonished because he says back to him, how can these things be? Do you know the expression of Nicodemus here is not all that different. It, in fact, it's pretty much the same as the response to most people in culture, in the world at large, when they hear the message of the good news of Jesus. How could that be? It seems too simple. Or it seems too bizarre. Or if they hear that phrase, born again, they go, man, y'all just sound crazy. What are you talking about? What do you mean born again? And they get the same images that some of us do. They just think of some preacher yelling at them or some guy at a stadium, outside of a stadium, holding a sign saying, repent, be born again, right? It's an incredibly effective evangelistic strategy. I'm, I'm joking, it's not. <laughs> it's just confusing. You know, Nicodemus approached Jesus as a very influential religious leader and he left Jesus as a very confused religious leader, at least for a little bit. But Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, look, man, you're, you're a leader. You're a religious leader. You don't get what I'm saying? You're supposed to know the word. You're supposed to understand Genesis 3. You're supposed to get what happened that 
ruined everything and caused every single person to be born, here's the key, every single person is first born into sin. Every single one. Since Genesis 3, if you're not familiar, Genesis 3 is the part of the Bible right at the very beginning where Adam and Eve chose pride and their story over God and his story. God created them and he created them to flourish. He created them to flourish in full relationship with him, in perfect communion with God. And he gave them parameters. Remember, freedom is not... Godly freedom is not without parameters. Godly freedom is walking in step with what God has designed. That's freedom, that's actually true freedom. Think about it this way. We might say, we try to define in America at least, we try to find a freedom, freedom is whatever you want, whatever you wanna do, how you wanna do it, when you wanna do it, where you wanna do it, that's freedom. I was recently listening to a podcast and it was a comedian who identified himself in his comedic act is an angry agnostic. That's how he self-identified. But he actually went on to talk about in his comedic routine how um, he had been in a country, I won't name the country, where there was truly, there was truly no law. There was truly no parameters on life. And he said, I love America. And he said, the reason I love America is because we have freedom, and this is, he said, I'm summing up what he said, we have freedom, but with parameters. Because I've been somewhere, I've lived somewhere where that's not the case, and it's not freedom. Another way to think about it is this. You might say, well, that fish needs to be free. So I'm gonna take it out of the confines of the water that it's in, and I'm gonna put it on the bank so that it can free, be free to breathe. And what's gonna happen to it? It's gonna die. Because freedom for that fish is in the confines of the water that it swims in. So God gives confines to the creation and he, and he puts parameters upon it and he says, this is how you walk with me. This is how you flourish as those who are made in my likeness. And Adam and Eve enjoyed that for a very little bit before they said, I don't think you're for me. They were persuaded by the enemy by the serpent, by the conniving one, who convinced them that God's not really for them, that what he has designed is not really ultimately for their best, and that there's a, a, a greater freedom to be experienced when we get to define that freedom. And so they chose to explore their own way, and they sinned against God, disobeyed him. And when that happened, and here's, here's what I want you to tap into. When that happened, every single human there from then on out inherited the residue of our first parents. Meaning that every single human from that point on was born into the nature of sin. We were born not just with the propensity to sin, we were born with the nature to sin. The scripture talks about how we are even conceived in our mother's womb in sin because it's our nature, it's who we are. We're not sinful because of what we do, we are sinful because of who we are. We come out of the womb, even in it, not desiring God, not desiring anything of him. And so if that's true, and Romans five speaks to this, that we were born into Adam as our head, that he's the one, we, I like to call it, we were born with the Adamic residue, the residue of Adam in us, coursing through our veins. 
And so if that's true, and that's what we're born into, and there is a God who created us for his glory, then we've got a huge problem. We have a massive problem, which is this. We're a people made in the image of God to enjoy God and glorify him forever, but we have, we have totally and completely screwed that up. We're marred by our sin, and we all feel deep within us. And this is the part that I want you to tap into as well. And this is what I alluded to a, little, a few minutes ago. We are all born with this longing to be made new. And so we search for it in all the various places that we think this world can provide it. To be renewed is the longing of the human heart. Now, if you continue reading in the scriptures, what begins to be laid out for us is, is a profound, at one level simple, but in another level profound reality, which is this, that there is one who came and if you've been in church or around church enough to where you know what I'm about to say, your temptation is, okay, he's about to talk about Jesus. I know this, I'm gonna tune out. I encourage you, don't tune out. If you're so familiar with it, let it be fresh for you. If you're not familiar with it, then let it be new for you. But God says this, he says, look, in every way, the ones I created in my likeness to mirror me throughout the world and to enjoy me and glorify me forever and experience the flourishing that I created them for. I love them so much. I love them so much and they are unmoved by my love. I've shown them various ways over and over again how much I love them and yet they will not respond. But even deeper than that, God is a holy God, and he is a just God. And if he's holy and he's just, then he must, by his very nature, it's not a choice, he must act according to his character and pour out the just wrath that sin deserves. The ultimate penalty of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Ephesians 2 says it this way. The apostle Paul is writing, and he's trying to help the Ephesian Folks, understand this. And he says this. He says, for you were dead in the trespasses of your sin in which we once walked. Not that we were wrong. It's not that we were mistaken. It's not that we were uh, kind of off. It's that we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. He, he then gives three categories to press it in even further in these few verses in uh, Chapter two of Ephesians, he says that we follow the way of the world, that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience himself, he's talking about Satan, that that's who by nature we follow now in our first birth. And then thirdly, he says that we are by nature, there it is again, by our very nature, we are children of wrath, that a holy God who has to punish sin must pour out his just wrath on sin. And it is bleak, overwhelmingly discouraging news. We'll call it bad news if we end it there. It's not good news. But then in verse four of chapter two, he interjects with one of the greatest words of all time, but. But God being, don't miss this, rich in mercy, 
But God, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together again with Jesus. By grace you have been saved. This is not of ourselves. This is not something that we warrant or achieve through our morality. By grace we have been saved, and here's a key phrase, through faith. Listen, don't miss this. Spiritual renewal, Christianity, following Jesus and the renewal that he brings is not moral reformation through self-improvement. It's not. What Jesus offers is spiritual transformation, not through what we do, but through faith in him. Now, this whole born-again thing, I wonder when it clicked for the apostles. Because they weren't getting it, just like we have a hard time getting it. In John chapter 20, the very one, the apostle John who was writing what we read just a moment ago when he was recounting that story with Nicodemus, he's writing again later on and he's recounting the resurrection. And his account was this. He says that, that he and Peter and the other disciples were hanging out Morning, can you imagine? They've given their whole lives to this Messiah that they thought, this Savior that they thought was going to march into Rome and overthrow the government and restore Israel's kingdom like it was in the days of David and Solomon. They thought it was a political, military takeover that Jesus came to do. So when he dies on the cross, they are absolutely stunned. They've left everything to follow this guy. Now he's dead. And even though Jesus had told them three separate times that we have recorded, hey, I'm gonna be beaten, I'm gonna be crucified, and on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. They were like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. When do you go to Rome? When do we get to reign with you? When do we overthrow Caesar? When does Israel get his kingdom back? What, rise again, whatever, okay. And he had told them that, this, but they, they weren't getting it. But, but Mary Magdalene and some of the ladies had gone to the tomb early in the morning on that Sunday morning. And they had seen that Jesus had risen and he had even appeared to them. They thought he was the gardener, but it was Jesus. And Mary, Mary's just ecstatic. She doesn't know what to do. She runs back. Women in that day never ran. And she runs back and she finds Peter and John. They're kind of the representatives, if you, are, if you were, uh, uh, as it were, of the, of the disciples. And so Peter and John, she tells them, she says, look, and she's still confused, right? You would be. Right? Even though he's like, okay, I met this gardener, wait, but he said it was Jesus and I was ecstatic and now I've run back and during that time I've been running back, maybe it wasn't Jesus, I don't know. They get to Peter and John and she goes, look, Jesus is not in the tomb, they've taken his body, we don't know where it is. Right, she's already doubting. The unbelief is already starting to set in. Peter and John leap up and they take off running and as John records it, it says they start running to where they know they put him in the tomb. And John's writing this, and he just has to throw in there, for what reason, I have no idea other than to just stick one to Peter. He says, and the one who Jesus loved the most, that's a, that's a fancy way of saying Jesus' best friend, which was John, ran ahead of Peter. He had a faster 40 time. <laughs> Take that, Peter. You're slow. And he gets to the tomb first. But John is more hesitant. If you've read the scriptures, you know Peter is boisterous. Peter's not afraid until he's in the courtyard denying Jesus three times, right? But he's the one that always speaks up. And John gets to the tomb and he'll only peek in. He's afraid to go in. Peter gets there, I don't know how much later, five seconds later, how fast was John? Who knows? Peter gets there 
and Peter barrels in. He doesn't wait, and he gets into the tomb, and he says, John, he's not here. And John then gets the courage to go in and, and listen to what it says. Watch this. John chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. You'll see it on the screens. It says this. Watch, listen to the language that John records. Then the other disciple, he's talking about himself, John. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, watch this, and he saw and believed. Have you not been believing this whole time, John? No, no, this is a new belief. This is the penny finally dropped belief. This is, a, oh my goodness, it's clicking now belief. This is not Jesus came to overthrow Rome belief. This is Jesus came to overthrow the grave belief that's suddenly hitting John. We thought Jesus was coming to do a good thing. We are not realizing the great thing that he came to do. How dumb are we? How blind are we? I'm seeing it now in the empty tomb. Because watch what it says, very next verse. He says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. He must. Why? Because if he doesn't, then we got a dead savior. Like every other religious figure who says, I can give you this and I can give you this and I can give you this, but succumb to the full penalty of sin, which is death itself. There is no victory. There is no hope. It's try your best to be good, to morally reform yourself, to spiritually improve yourself. But at the end of the day, you're going to stay in the grave. There is no resurrection of the body in all these other real world religions. Sure, there's spiritual resurrection that, they, that, are, that are propagated, but where is there hope for creation? It's only in Jesus. Where is there hope for the body? If God created us in bodily form to enjoy him forever and glorify him forever and rule and reign with him over all his creation, then what good is it if his only spiritual renewal at the end? That's first and foremost, yes. We have to be made new spiritually to be forgiven of our sins and to be restored into right relationship with God. But the great hope of the kingdom of God is that he's gonna make all things new. And he's gonna start with those who are the preeminent display of his creation, which is humans. We are made in the likeness, like no other creature. We are made in the likeness of God. And he's gonna restore us first. And when Jesus returns as the risen Savior, riding on the clouds, as scripture says, we, the dead in Christ, will rise again. And this is where some people who don't know about this whole Christianity thing says, man, you're getting weird. But the hope of creation hope of all things being made new, including you and me, first and foremost, it's only in Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one, the only one who dealt with the power of sin on the cross and then dealt with the very penalty of sin in the resurrection. And when he comes again, like he promised he would, just like he told the disciples and they didn't get it. Hey, I'm gonna be beaten and I'm gonna be crucified and then I'm gonna raise on the third day and they went, huh? He told us, I'm gonna come again and some of us go, huh? But he, just like he said he would do, he's gonna come again and how he dealt with the power of sin on the cross and he dealt with the penalty of sin in the resurrection, he's gonna de deal with the very presence of sin when he comes again. Where there will be on his return, there will be no more sorrow and pain and sadness, but most importantly, there will be no more sin. 
Because in the same way that he killed death as the penalty of sin, he will kill sin itself with its ruler, Satan, once and for all. He told us in Genesis 3, did he not? Do you remember? If you've read Genesis 3, do you remember what happens? Sin is minutes old. Okay, so this gives us a little hint into God's not all of a sudden having to uh, scurry and come up with plan B. Now I created this garden, now you've ruined it. What do I do now? No, no, sin is minutes old. And as he's pronouncing the curse that he has to pronounce as a holy, just God upon sin, he's pronouncing the curse on the serpent first before he gets to the man and woman. And this is what he promises the serpent. He says, listen, there's gonna be a day, Genesis 3.15, if you wanna make note of it, there's gonna be a day where you're gonna bruise the heel of the offspring of that woman. Metaphorical way of saying, you're gonna think you've won. You're gonna do a lot of damage. And you are going in your overwhelming, ridiculous pride, Satan, you're gonna think you've done it. And then the curse on the serpent is simply this. He looks at the serpent God himself, and he says, but that one that you struck the heel of that's gonna make you think you won, he's going to crush your head. And the beginning of that crushing is when he walked out of the grave. When he walked out of the grave, Satan's head began to crack. And Satan knows the rest of the story, and he knows God's not a liar. And he knows that that is just the beginning of the full crushing that will happen when Jesus comes again. How does this, what does this have to do with being born again? Why did it click for John when he peeked into the tomb? Here's, here's how it all began to make sense. Because you and I, in our first birth, when we are born literally physically, September 12th, 1979, when I was born. If you're taking notes, write that down. I expect a lot of presents. September 12th, 1979, when I was born, out of my mother's womb, I was born into the tomb spiritually. I was dead. You and I, every single person, we are born in the tomb spiritually. We are dead in the trespasses of our sin. And if there's any hope any hope, it's not in us because we can't make ourselves alive. What can dead people do? We can lay there and spiritually rot. And we can put lipstick on a dead pig with our morality. We can think we're making it beautiful. We can say, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And God is, so, is saying, you're still dead. Unless there's one who can defeat death for you. And when John peeked into that tomb and it said, and he saw and believed, it's at that moment that I think for he and for Peter, they went, oh, this is what he was telling Nicodemus about. Colossians 1.18 calls Jesus this. It says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead doesn't mean Jesus was created. He's eternal. The second person of the Trinity. It means that he is the one who conquered the grave for us and was reborn as it were so that we in him can be reborn spiritually as well. So that we can be made from death 
to life spiritually so that we too cannot just know life now, but be resurrected from the dead in that day as well and reign with him for all of eternity. Peter, we'll close with this. This is the verse we had read at the very beginning from Kevin. In 1 Peter chapter one, this is how he says it. Remember, he's there with John at the tomb and he's connecting the dots as well. This is what he says. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has, here it is, he has caused us to be born again. Who did it? Did I do it? Did you do it? No, he, he has caused us to be born again. Now watch the next words. Into a living hope, keywords, living hope, we're alive now, and our hope is not in ourselves or our goodness, but in Jesus and his goodness. Here it is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How are we born again? How do we pass from death to life, both now and forevermore? It's only in Jesus. What I don't have time to get to in that passage is he says, and what is that living hope that we're born into through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? He says it's through faith meaning it's not, it has nothing to do with what we do and everything to do with what we believe. Jesus told Nicodemus as much when he continued the conversation. Later on in the conversation with Nicodemus is where we get the famous verse, even if you haven't been in church very much, you've heard this one. He's still talking to Nicodemus and he says, for God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his one and only son that whoever gets their act together and really improves themselves morally and becomes just a religious freak will have eternal life in heaven. No, that's not what he says. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him will not perish, they will not die, but will have eternal life. Why? Because Jesus walked out of the grave and when you, when you connect yourself by faith to him, you walk out of the grave because he did. That's the living hope. And then he keeps going, Peter keeps going, and I'll just mention it, another sermon for another day. In fact, I did preach this back in January. If you really wanna know, go back and listen to that one. He says, and he's birthed us into this living hope that is an inheritance being kept for us. It is unperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. In other words, there's nothing you can do to lose it. There is an inheritance being kept in heaven by God, by the power of God for you. If you wrap yourself up in faith, by faith in Jesus, that's your inheritance. Only Jesus, only Jesus satisfied justice. Only Jesus diverted wrath. Only Jesus conquered sin. Only Jesus achieved the perfect standard of righteousness. Only Jesus opened heaven wide for sinners like you and me. Only Jesus walked out of that grave. And it's only in Jesus that you and I will too. Father, we give you thanks for this amazing, wondrous, miraculous, overwhelming good news. That in all the ways that we long to be made new, 
Would you open our eyes even now to see that all of our deepest longings are found. They are yes and forever in Jesus. Father, would you open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus right now? And would you give some of us here who've never peeked into that tomb, as it were, would you give us the ability to peek into the empty tomb and to see and believe? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's praise him. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.